G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey and welcome to I'm Loving Your Work. Today on the show, we're trying something a little different. This week will be the first of two parts of my discussion with Chris Appleford. Chris has worked in a number of roles and industries over the journey, including as the media and then digital media manager at the Melbourne Storm through the most pivotal period in the club's history. In part one, we will be discussing how Chris came to be at the Melbourne Storm and his insider's perspective of what it was like to be at the club through a period of great success and then turmoil as the Storm were charged with a breach of the salary cap. Next week, we will hear the rest of Chris's professional journey. I hope you enjoy part one of my chat with Chris Appleford. Alright, so today we've got Chris Appleford with us. Chris, thank you so much for, for coming along. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, Chris, you've had quite an interesting sort of career path over the time. Let's let's start with where you're at now. What, what do you tell people that you do if, if someone was to ask you at a barbecue <laughs> or, or something like that? Great question. Um, probably personal trainer is the first thing that springs to mind, uh, but I sort of keep my fingers in a number of pies, so that's part-time. Uh, I also do freelance writing for a number of clients, again, part-time. Uh, I just finished a contract with Tennis Australia to project manage their fan engagement sites at the Australian Open, so that was a four-month contract that I've done for two years now, so I kind of pick up little bits and pieces of work here and there just from the connections I've made over the years and the interests that I'm in. Uh, but I guess I'd like that all to kind of end and um, and get finished with the projects that I've got up and running to, to head down that path. Yeah, sure. And we'll get into some of those bits and pieces that you've been through and some of the projects that you've got going on uh, soon. But um, one question I sort of like to ask people towards the start of the podcast is, when you're a kid, what did you want to be when you grow up? I guess the first thing that I really thought that I wanted to be, I thought about it in high school, and it was to be a PE teacher. So I had never, I'd never really had any, you know, I didn't have any boyhood desires to be a fireman or, you know, all of the, um, all of those cliches, you know, I didn't want to be an astronaut or I didn't want to be a professional footballer, you know, I didn't, I didn't know, I just didn't know. Uh, And I probably still don't know. Even though I'm 43, I still really don't know what I want to be when I grow up. But I, I, I decided that PE teaching would be a pretty good career. And so I finished high school uh, and went to uni and, and started that degree. Yeah, sure. I didn't finish it though. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, yeah, so, so you, you went on to do a bit of teaching. What drew you from PE teaching into to primary school teaching? So I, my first year of uni was a bit of a disaster. It was... I was, yeah, I was probably a bit immature for it. Um, I went there, I was just a boy from Georgetown on the north coast of Tasmania, Then I went up to the Big Smoke Launceston and went to university and met all these wonderful people from around the place and probably let the social side of things get ahead of me and neglected the school side of things. So at the end of that first year, I decided to defer for 12 months and that 12 months turned into three years and I did a little bit of work for my uncle who works on construction sites. I did a little bit of work for Soccer Tasmania um, as their development officer in northern Tasmania. And then I decided that I didn't want to be a PE teacher. I wanted to be a primary school classroom teacher. And so I went back and did a degree as a primary school teacher. Uh, I did a primary school teaching degree, yeah. 
Um, and yeah, so, so during those couple of years where you went from uni, not necessarily kind of knowing where you'd kind of end up, what was that like? Was that sort of a, a stressful time or was that sort of pretty cruisy with where you were at? I, f- I didn't find, like in terms of the academic side of things, I didn't find it particularly difficult. So I didn't find that stressful. Um, but I knew halfway through the degree, so two years into the four-year degree, that I didn't want to be a teacher. But I had already dropped out of uni once and didn't want to do it again. So I battled on, uh, finished the four-year degree, and then moved to London straight away and started teaching over there in primary schools, which was a fantastic experience, a fantastic decision. I travelled all around Europe uh, for the two years I was there, and I wouldn't change a thing uh, about that experience. But I guess my, my concern at that point was I graduated university when I was 26, Knew I didn't want to be a teacher, but then went and did it anyway for a few years. So I was kind of getting towards my 30s and not not knowing what I was doing. So that was the stressful part. And so after sort of, yeah, giving teaching a go for a little while, and obviously you're getting a lot out of that, yep. um, you moved on to the Melbourne Storm. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your role there. Yeah, so when I came back from London, I didn't know what I was, I didn't know what I was going to do. So I moved to the Gold Coast with a mate of mine. Um, I'd never been there before, but we just decided to go there and spend two years there, sort of partying, really, and working a bit. And um, But while I was there, I went back to university and got a Master's of Sports Management degree and then moved to Melbourne for a number of reasons. My dad lives in Melbourne. The rest of my family are in Tassie, uh, so I was a bit closer to them. Um, and Melbourne's the sporting capital of the universe, so yeah. I decided to to come down and try and get into the sports industry. Um, while I was doing my master's degree, I met Dean Lance, who was the assistant coach of the Melbourne Storm at the time. He was also doing the course, and we struck up a bit of a friendship. So in exchange for me helping him with his assignments, <laughs> he uh, introduced me to the Melbourne Storm, gave me tickets to the games. I'd sit in the press box with the media manager and the journalists and watch the games from up there. Um, I'd be able to go down into the press conferences after the game, into the change rooms, and sort of I got a real taste for what professional sport was like, and that really whetted my appetite. And then the media manager position became available, and Dean got me an interview. Uh, I didn't get the job. Uh, Claire Mitchell Taverner got the job, who's a um, gold medalist hockey player from the 2000 Olympics and but she decided that she needed an assistant media manager and so she hired me to be the assistant and that's that was my in and yeah, that was sure. 2005. Yeah okay so you you're with the storm for, for a number of years there mm-hmm. I imagine during your time there you probably would have seen a bit of a shift towards the kind of digital age of media and that mm-hmm. sort of thing they were pretty kind of oh, those years were, were pretty big for the yeah the transitional time between kind of traditional media and, and digital media do you remember sort of when when you noticed that digital media was sort of the juggernaut that it was becoming yeah it was um, it was 2008 so I'd As the media manager, four months after getting my job there as the assistant media manager, the media manager left, Claire, and so the boss, Brian, just asked me if I wanted to be the media manager, and um, so I just stepped up into the role with very little experience, and I sort of just winged it there for a while and uh, until I got my feet um, firmly under the desk, and then I did that for three years, and during that time as the media manager, you were also in charge of anything digital, which was basically at that time, the website. 
Sure. So, and we had what I thought was arguably the worst website in Australian sport. It was horrible. It was so bad. And then sort of 2007-ish, the NRL started discussing um, this club network idea, which was every club goes on to um, this network where all of the websites look very similar, um, except that your branding, obviously, your colours, your stories, your videos, all, you know, all of that sort of uh, all of that sort of stuff. Um, but instead of every club being responsible for their own costs for their own website, everyone shared the costs of running this network. So it was, and we could sell advertising right across the network. Um, we could help each other out. There was a um, a club network committee that I was uh, voted on to. So that was um, so that was about the time when I thought, yep, this is getting a lot bigger. And Facebook sort of had come onto the scene at around about that time. Um, and we were just dipping our toes into social media. So that was when I thought, yep, this is getting big. And so I approached the boss, Brian, and said, this job as media manager is getting too big for one person. I think it needs to be split into two roles, a traditional media manager and a digital media manager. And I'd like to be the digital media manager. And can you hire someone else to become the media manager? And Brian, as always, was very receptive and very supportive of me and said, if that's what you want to do, Chris, let's do it. And uh, at the end of that 20, uh, 2007 season, we split the role in two and I became the digital media manager. Obviously, the, the Storm had a, a pretty good few years there on the field. Did you notice sort of from the first days that you were at the Storm to, say, their kind of few premiership years, did you notice a difference in the way the club was being run or even just a general feeling around the club? Or Certainly became a lot more professional um, from the point of view of the game was getting bigger. The game was getting bigger. They were expanding into other markets. The Storm were getting more popular in Melbourne. We had the transition from Olympic Park, which was an old dilapidated 1950s stadium to Amy Park. Mm -hmm. So we just had to become more professional. Plus, we had this thing called the NRL Club Network, which was this professionally run digital package that every club um, was now a part of and had signed up to. So from that point of view, uh, yeah, it definitely became more professional. Craig Bellamy, the coach, um, had been there for uh, you know four or five years by that stage and had become a fantastic coach by NRL standards. So he was, of course, evolving and, and becoming a better coach every year. So the standard of the football department and what they needed and what they wanted and the 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 standards that they held themselves to became um, bigger and more important uh, every year. And so that rubs off on the rest of the organisation as well. So from the time I started at the Melbourne Storm, when we were in a tiny little building on the site of what is now Amy Park, with about 20 staff, the team were doing their weight training in, in literally a green tin shed yeah. um, just next door and training on what can probably be described as an amateur football field um, to what is there now professional, like great training facilities, great gym, um, excellent office space for the staff, real club feel. You know you've walked into a sporting organisation when you walk in there. Um, it's chalk and cheese. Yeah, sure. And so how do you feel that your role differed, for example, from someone 
who was doing a similar role for a club in, say, Sydney or in Queensland, who might be kind of more in the NRL heartland, I suppose. Were there any challenges that came up sort of being part of the storm, sort of yeah, in that Melbourne market that, that hadn't quite been tapped properly by the, uh, by the NRL at that stage? Yeah, so I guess if you're the media manager of an NRL club in Sydney, you have a lot more... Uh, you have a lot more requests coming your way, which means you can be a bit more choosier about what you do and don't do. My role was about going out and pitching a lot of ideas to our journalists. Um, but having said that, you know, people get this misconception that we don't get a lot of coverage here in Melbourne. But the reality is that during the three years that I was the media manager of the Melbourne Storm, we had more the Melbourne Storm was the number one covered rugby league team in Australia uh, and also the number one rugby league team in Australia for positive news items. So it was, it's a bit of a furphy that, we, that we're left alone. But, um, and also the Herald Sun and The Age had dedicated a dedicated rugby league journalist. Mm. So um, I would just call them every day or they would call me and we just – pitch ideas to each other and we'd see where it fell. And um, But I went out of my way to accommodate journalists who wanted to cover the Melbourne Storm, whereas in Rugby League Heartlands, they could quite easily say no and the next day the journalist would ring them and be asking them to do a different story. Not quite the same in Melbourne. Yeah. Um, and... Are there other types of stories and that sort of thing? Do you notice any difference in Sydney and Melbourne or particularly during that time? I imagine a lot of it in Melbourne would have been, yeah, I imagine about exposure to the the AFL crowd, sorry, whereas maybe in Sydney they're, they're kind of more into the game already. Was was there any of that happening at all? Uh, Sydney journalists, because they're in Rugby League heartland, they have pages and pages to fill every day. Mm-hmm. So they need stories. So they are looking for any story, whether it's a football story or whether it's a personal story, whether it's dirt, whether it's good, whether it's bad, it doesn't really matter. Whereas as long as it's newsworthy and it's in the public interest, of course, but in Melbourne, it's a little bit different. We had a very close relationship with the journalist from the Herald Sun and with the journalist from The Age. And so... We need to, to scratch each other's back a little bit. So, for example, if if the guy from The Age decided to write a nasty personal piece about one of our players, there's a good chance that our players wouldn't want to deal with him anymore. Mm. So uh, that would be a battle for me and because I'd need the players to do the interviews um, and I'd need the journalist to try and tone down their negativity I guess so uh, so that was managing those relationships was probably my uh, one of my main jobs um, but we never we very rarely had our Melbourne based rugby league journalists want to write a, a nasty story about us because yeah we need we needed each other mm. obviously there was a, a tumultuous period at, at the club probably I think th- is 2010 was it when sort of the salary cap breach and that came out what was that like being involved kind of intimately with the club on a on a daily basis yeah what was that like to go through uh, it was very tough mm. um 
It was tough from a number of reasons. News Limited came down on the day of the scandal erupting. And I remember um, John Hardigan coming in and addressing the staff and telling everybody that they would be with them 100% of the way, 100, you know, every step of the way. If you ever needed them, they'd be there. And then we didn't see them again. Well, not much. Certainly not at my level of the store. Maybe at upper management and CEO level, they were supportive, but certainly not where we were. We never saw the NRL for four months. So it would have been nice for the NRL to come down immediately and address the staff and say something like, um, here's what's happened. Here's why we've punished your club the way we've punished your club. But here's what we're going to do to help you get back on your feet and we'll support you every step of the way. And there was none of that from the NRL. When they came down four months later, we were told that they couldn't come down straight away because the independent directors had filed a lawsuit against the NRL which is true, they did, but that wasn't for three or four weeks after the sanctions were handed down and there was plenty of time for the NRL to come down. So so the staff at that sort of middle management and entry level, um, st- the staff at those levels were sort of left to their own devices to try and figure out what was going on and what wasn't going on. So we had to get our news from media. And when you've got News Limited and Fairfax in a battle royale, and the Melbourne Storm were half-owned by News Limited at that stage, then you've got Fairfax writing articles and making comments that may or may not be true, and then you've got News Limited also making comments that may or may not be true, and somehow, somewhere in the middle, the staff have to make sense of it. And it was just... Really difficult time, really difficult time. Uh, some staff left, um, some staff um, stuck around for a while and then left, and, and there are still some staff there who ha- who haven't left. So, um, so yeah, tough time. But not not only that, you'd leave the office and your friends would be talking to you about it and your family would be talking to you about it and you turn on the radio and they're talking about it and, you know, it was just impossible to escape. Mm. So it took its toll. And so how did some of that stuff tangibly sort of affect your role in terms of being the, the media manager or the digital media manager at that stage? Um, was it was there any sort of like da- damage limitation that, that was part of your role or was oh, it yeah. very much about trying to kind of filter the positive stories out of, out of it all? Or? Yeah, so from, I was the digital manager, so I administered all of our social media platforms. And we all know how social media can get uh, when there's blood in the water, yeah. you know. There's the, the keyboard warriors come out, yeah. they're rabid, um, and they, you know, they post and say some pretty disgusting things. And here I was reading all of this and trying to manage that. The problem was the Melbourne Storm had cheated. Mm. and you couldn't it was very difficult to defend yourself so even if you were right even if fairfax or news limited had written something that was blatantly wrong you couldn't come out and defend yourself because you cheated and no one was going to believe you you know so we kind of had to just write it out um but we managed we managed it as best we can by answering people's questions um, 
trying, not necessarily trying to set the record straight, but certainly, um, you know, releasing news about your club and trying to be as business as normal as possible. Um, and then slowly but surely turning the tide of resentment against the club into, okay, these guys have done the wrong thing, but they're cleaning up their act and, mm. and getting back to it. And how long do you think it took for that sort of process to, yeah, to, to be undertaken in terms of going from that tumultuous period to kind of feeling more, I suppose, uh, steady-footed, for lack of a better yeah. term? Um, like, did that last throughout the whole 2010 season when the, when the Storm were unable to play for points, for yeah. example? Yeah, so 2010 was, a, yeah, it was just a write-off. Mm. Um, it was just a matter of getting through it. 2011, uh, it was a fresh start again. But, um, you know, there was still the residue of the season before. We made a preliminary final that year, probably should have made the grand final. Probably should have won it, to be fair, but uh, probably should have made the grand final at least. We lost a preliminary final at home. And then, uh, so I guess it probably wasn't until 2012 when it was really, okay, that's firmly behind us now. That's in the past. Everything's been cleaned up. We're moving forward. And... I wasn't at the club by that stage. I left uh, at the end of 2011 and you could just see that the club, certainly from a playing point of view, had moved forward because they went and won the premiership that year. So um, fantastic result and really showed that it wasn't money that won us those premierships. It was the fact that we had a superstar coach, we had some superstar players, we had great systems in place and uh, on a football and administrative level and that the club is a successful club mm. and it's in their DNA. Yeah, and so looking at, so for example, that the Parramatta situation that we had last year, how do you feel as someone who was probably directly affected by those administrative decisions made by the NRL in 2010, how do you feel about the disparity, I suppose, between the punishments that were handed out to, to the Parramatta Eels and, and the Storm? Yeah, it's... It's interesting because I don't really have an issue with the punishment that was handed out to the Storm. And that might sound blasphemous to a Melbourne Storm fan, but if that's the punishment, then that's the punishment. No problems. The problem is is that you can't meet out the same punishment to another club who hasn't achieved the same things. You know, so Parramatta hadn't won premierships, so they couldn't be taken away. But that's just the that's just the way it goes. So I've got no issue there. What I've got what the main problem I had with David Gallup making his decisions uh, and uh, the new management making their decisions for Parramatta was that David Gallup took away all hope, all hope. Mm-hmm. No, you're not playing for points. You still got to turn up. Screw your fans. Whatever um, doesn't matter anymore. Too bad. And he, he made all of these decisions between meeting our CEO and club president first thing in the morning or 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning and then handing out the punishment at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. He was judge, jury and executioner and there was no deliberation, at least from what I could tell, um, to understand or, or nut out all of the possibilities of all of the sanctions that they could do and then come to this in such a short period of time. On the other hand, the Parramatta situation was, okay, you've done the wrong thing, we're going to punish you, but if you get your house in order, then there's still hope for you this year. Mm -hmm. And so 
it's still a very difficult task and Parramatta couldn't make it happen, which, um, you know, they didn't play finals that year, even though they, I think they were on top or close to on top at the time when the punishments were handed out. All of a sudden they're relegated to last. But if you get your house in order, you can still play for points and you can still make the finals, which they didn't do because it has such a huge effect on the club. But there was hope. Mm. And why? what's the point of supporting your club or your team or your sport if there's just no hope? Mm. You know, you've, you've got to give your fans hope. And David Gallup just didn't get it, didn't understand it. And from my point of view, got it horribly wrong. And so, so whilst you're at the at the storm, you also did a bit of work with SEN Radio in mm. Melbourne, the, the sports radio station. Yep. Um, what was that like to be involved in? I suppose the media and yeah, the the club that the media may be speaking about. Was there ever a, not necessarily conflicts of interest, but challenges that came with that, or or even on the opposite side, were there benefits that came from having that connection with the club and uh, a bit of both? Yeah. Um, so I started at SEN before I started at the Storm. Um, as soon as I moved to Melbourne, I started volunteering at SEN and then um, became a part of the Fort Diego Soccer Show. And uh, and then I was doing overnights, looking after Tony Shebeki's shifts when he couldn't do it. And then I started, became the um, overnight guy for the weekends. Um, and then I had another couple of other programs, Saturday and Sunday afternoon there for a while, and the Gladiators of Sport program for a little while. So I was probably heavily involved um, for a bit there, and it was great. So I got to find out what that side of the media was like as well. So it, it, for, forging those relationships held us in pretty good stead, I think. The media have a job to do, and if there's a story to tell, it doesn't matter if you're their best friend or not. They've got to tell it, and they will tell it. The difference is that they might give you a heads up so you can go into a bit of damage control. Um, they might give you a, a right of reply. Um, so that's where the relationship side of things comes in, and that's great. Um, but if you're going to if you're going to get into the media from a clubland point of view, like I was, you've just got to understand and accept that the media has a job to do. You might not like it at times. There was an article written about. Um, during the whole salary cap saga for News Limited about where Greg Inglis lived. Um, the fact that he was a superstar rugby league player, probably the best in the world, living in Point Cook. What the hell is he doing out there? And I just looked at that story and thought, that's just disgusting journalism. You know, what's the point of that story? Why are you, you know, what are you, what are you saying about Point Cook? What are you saying about Greg Inglis? Um, just no point. So that those kinds of articles, those kinds of stories, is really gutter journalism, and that's what makes you, you know, that's what gives you a really bad day sometimes. But, um, but certainly, media management is all about having relationships, good, honest, working relationships with the the traditional and now digital media um, experts. Mm-hmm. And so, so you mentioned that you studied sports management. How much of that degree do you think led you to uh, SEN and the Storm and everything that followed there? Or was it about sort of once you kind of get your foot in the pond of, of sport and that sort of thing, then you can sort of go from there? Yeah, so f- I guess from an academic point of view, 
Not much, if I'm going to be honest. Um, it meant that I had this qualification called a Masters of Sports Management and I could use it on my CV to get interviews. But while I was doing the course, I met a guy called Ian Hansen, who is the media manager for... He owns his own company called Ian Hansen Media and or Ian Hansen Sports Media. And he is the media manager of basically all of the water-based sports in Australia. So the Australian swimming team, diving, so fly saving Australia. His daughter's Brooke Hansen, former Olympian. Um, so I, after an, a lecture where he was the guest lecturer for the day, I just sort of went up to him and asked him if I could come and do some work experience for him. That sort of led from a day a week of coming out and just, you know, he just gave me some little jobs to do, like write an article for the Surf Life Saving website or just write a press release or something to actually giving me a, a job one or two days a week, which was nice, fit that fit in a, around my university studies. And then I also met Dean Lance while I was doing the course. So it's kind of, again, about the people you meet and the relationships you build and where that can take you. It's nice to have Masters of Sports Management degree hanging on the wall and on my CV. It's really nice, and it probably opens up a few doors. But the real, the real learning is when you're actually in the job. Yeah. You don't learn anything when you're not in the job. Mm-hmm.